Brilliant. Thank you. And good morning, everyone. How wonderful it's to be with you this morning as we share in fellowship together. Now, can I encourage you to please open your Bibles to page 975? That should be instinctive. When the person gets up to preach, you should be opening your Bibles because you have no idea what they're going to say and you can't trust them as far as you can throw them. So you check through the Bible to make sure what we're saying is there in the Bible. Just because I'm the archdeacon is no guarantee that I'm going to tell you the truth. So make sure you've got your Bibles open. Hold me to account by looking at the scriptures together. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we pray now that as I teach your word, that by your spirit you would help me to explain your word faithfully and clearly and help each one of us as we sit under your word that by your spirit you would take that word and write it deep in our hearts and minds so that we might be the people you would have us be to your praise and glory. Amen. Amen. Now, can you all hear me okay? You're all fine? Brilliant. So when was the first time that you had that sense of overwhelming responsibility? When the situation you were in or the new role that you just had was so serious that you thought, I'm going to have to step up here. I remember when our first child was born. We had a few days when we were surrounded by by family, by parents, and so forth, and it was all fantastic. But then they all left. And as we waved them goodbye and closed the door and went back into the house, my wife Judith and I stood and looked at this. Hold on a minute. This is for keeps. (laughs) We've got to get on with it now. And suddenly that weight of responsibility uh, fell upon us. It's true in other milestones in life, of course, as well, isn't it? The responsibility of entering an exam year at school or in your final year of university or starting work for the first time or the first time you're promoted at work and you suddenly have a whole lot of people who look to you or that first time you have to hire or fire. Well, here in Matthew chapter 10, uh, we see the 12 apostles about to take on responsibility for the first time. And it must have been both daunting and exhilarating uh, for them. If you look back into chapter 9, we'll see the context of this. Uh, Jesus has been going through the villages and towns, teaching and preaching and healing. And yet, the people just keep coming in huge numbers. And so we read in verse 36 of chapter 9, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. You see, Jesus is filled with compassion for these crowds. He longs for them to hear the message, and it's that compassion and love that leads him then to send out the 12 apostles in chapter 10. The proper motivation for mission and evangelism is compassion, love. And so we read chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. 
Jesus calls his disciples to him, and he gives them the authority to drive out evil spirits, to heal every disease and sickness. And in verse 5, he gives them a whole lot of instructions. He says, now don't go amongst the Gentiles or the Samaritans, go rather to the lost uh, sheep of Israel. And as you go, preach this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, and drive out demons freely you have received, so freely give. Can you imagine how exciting that must have been? Uh, They'd been following Jesus around. Uh, They'd seen him do all these amazing things. Uh, They'd seen huge crowds respond to his teaching. And now he was giving them the responsibility to go and do the same. Yes, it would have been daunting, but also so exciting. Uh, There would have been such expectancy. And that's why... Verse 16 is such a shocker. Have a look at it. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Now just think about that for a moment. Imagine a sheep straying into a path of a pack of wolves. It would be carnage, wouldn't it? Now, there's lots of imagery in the Bible uh, uh, involving sheep. And a lot of it has has, has become famous artwork. So you've got Jesus, the Lamb of God, sacrificed for his people. You've got Jesus, the loving shepherd, rescuing that single lost sheep. And you've got Jesus, the good shepherd, leading the flock to good pasture. But you know, I've never seen a painting of Jesus standing in the background pointing and some poor forlorn and somewhat depressed looking sheep walking towards a, a, a whole um, flock, a pack of wolves. And that's what Jesus says. Verse 16, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. So what does that mean for them, and what does that mean for us today? Well, I think there's two big lessons that we learn from this passage. They are that we are to share in Jesus' proclamation, and secondly, we are to share in Jesus' persecution. Now, I'm going to get to those, but let me just uh, spend a moment uh, thinking about how we understand uh, this passage for us today. How do we apply this teaching to ourselves today? Because, of course, the apostles, the 12 apostles, were unique in history, weren't they? Imagine I found Lisa's diary and read it. Now, I wouldn't do that because that would be very rude. But imagine I did, and I read there, and it said, dentist, 3 p.m. And I thought to myself, oh, well, I better go. Better go to the dentist. And then it said, visit David on Sunday the 25th at 10 a.m., And I said to myself, oh, well, I better go visit David. Well, the problem with that would be is that I wouldn't be here and I'd have an extra filling. (laughs) We wouldn't dream of doing that, would we? Because those instructions are for Lisa. So what, for example, do we do with verse 7 and 8? Have a look at it. As you go, says Jesus to the 12, 
Proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Now, some would say that um, they would take that verse straight to us today and say, right, in all our evangelism today, we have to see these things happening. We have to see this happening today. Um, What about verse 19? When they arrest you, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. So, does that mean I can avoid sermon prep from here on in? (laughs) The problem with picking verses in and out like that without taking the context is what do we do with the difficult verses like verse 9 and 10? Don't Don't get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or staff for the worker is worth his keep. So, is that a ban on suitcases for Christian workers? Uh, do we need to stop paying the clergy their stipend? Ooh. What about verse 5? These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions, do not go among the Gentiles or in, enter any towns of the Samaritans. Well, if we take that at face value, we won't do much evangelism in the United Kingdom, would we? So we need to be careful that when we come to Scripture that we read it consistently and we read it with its context in mind. Now, as I said, there are some important lessons for us to learn. And the first is this. Share, we are to share in Jesus' proclamation. Look at verse 7 again. As you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. And I'll explain there what that means in a minute. But what this message is at its heart is the kingdom of heaven is near. The very message that has been on Jesus' lips back in chapter 4, verse 17. And it's about a kingdom. That's the first thing. This is about Jesus, the king of his people. It's the fulfillment of history. It's the new Israel being inaugurated. God's people united to him in Christ... And that's why we have here the 12 apostles. Because like the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, these 12 will become the foundations of the church. In Revelation 21, we read about John having this vision of a new Jerusalem, the city Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And it has 12 gates And the names inscribed on each of the 12 gates are the 12 tribes of Israel. But also, that same city has 12 foundations. And on the foundations are written the names of the 12 apostles. You see, these 12 men are to be the foundation of the church, the base on which the church will grow and flourish. They will be the ones who take the message out to the world And it is a message about a kingdom. Um, Someone once very helpfully summarized kingdom as simply being God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's what a kingdom is all about. That's why when we speak the gospel, we must always be clear that we are talking about a relationship with Jesus. A relationship with God the King. Uh, and it is one whom we recognize him as our king and which we enjoy the benefits of being part of his kingdom. 
So it's a message about a kingdom, but it's specifically about the kingdom of heaven. It's not an earthly kingdom. It's not tied to country or nation. Uh, Jesus said elsewhere, my kingdom is not of this world. The ultimate fulfillment of this kingdom is what we are waiting for. When Jesus returns and we are part of a new and perfected world with God living with us and Jesus on the throne. And Jesus is the key. He, once he arrives on earth, he can say the kingdom of heaven is near. The gospel is all about him because he is the one who achieves it. He is the one who opens the door for us to enter the kingdom. He is the one who changes us uh, from being God's enemies to being his people. Now, the apostles hadn't quite got this yet because the cross and resurrection hadn't happened. Because it's there at the cross and at the resurrection that Jesus removes our sin. He dies our death. And he's raised to life in a victory that we can share in when we come to him. And that is where verse 8 comes in. Look again at verse 8. You see, the apostles proclaim Jesus' kingdom was near, and then they what to do there, to heal the sick, etc., etc. Now, those miracles were specific and particular. They were to be a signpost to the work that Jesus had come to do through his death on the cross. Uh, we see this um, in chapter 11. If you look, flip over just a chapter, and we see John the Baptist. He's in prison, and he's wondering about this Jesus. Who on earth is this character? Is he really the one who was promised? Is he the Messiah? How can we be sure? Well, he can't go and ask him because he's in prison, so he sends his mates along, and they say to him in verse, 30, in verse 3, they say, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? A reasonable, straightforward question. And Jesus answers. Look what he says in verse 4. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. So you see, what Jesus is saying is the very thing that was promised to tell is pointing to me as the one who is the Messiah. Those miracles were the proof of Jesus' identity. They cried out to all who saw him and saw them that he's here. God's promised Messiah has arrived. And that's what's going on with these miracles. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not, do I think that God can and does perform miracles today? Well, of course I do. And yes, he does. But don't, but, but you see, these miracles particularly, oh, hold on, there we go. Oh, hello, Moto. Okay. I think it's a good time to just take a deep breath, isn't it? It's so warm. These miracles point to what the Lord Jesus is going to do through his death on the cross for us. You see, the Lord Jesus healed the sick because through the cross and the resurrection, he brings us to a kingdom where there will be no more suffering and sickness. 
He was raised from the dead because by his death and resurrection, our last enemy, death, is defeated. He cleansed those with leprosy, uh, people who were alienated from society and shut out from the temple, because through the cross, alienation of our sin is removed and our sins are washed clean. And he drove out demons because at the cross and resurrection, Jesus triumphs over Satan so that the chains of our slavery to Satan are broken off. So for us today, I take it that as disciples of Jesus, we are still called to proclaim, to share in Jesus' proclamation that the kingdom of God is at hand. And we do that as we point back to the teaching of the apostles and the miracles that they performed, demonstrating what Jesus, through his death and resurrection on the cross, would accomplish as he brings us into his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is near. But the second thing I want to tell you, and don't panic, the second thing is much shorter, is that we also share in Jesus' persecution. Have a look at verse 17 and 18. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Well, not quite yet, because they weren't supposed to go to the Gentiles at the moment. But here Jesus is laying out a pattern that will mark the spread of the gospel, a pattern that we see throughout the book of Acts, a pattern that we see throughout church history. You see, the gospel brings persecution and division. Down in verse 34 of the chapter, Jesus says, Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And so when his kingdom enters into this world, there will be conflict. When you cross borders, there's conflict. And when we bring people into peace with God, into a relationship with him, they then become enemies of the world around them. Notice how this persecution comes from three directions. There's firstly, there's from the religious, verse 17. You'll be handed over to local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. Then from government, on my account, you will be brought before governors and kings. And then third, there's persecution even within families. Verse 21, brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. And we know sadly, don't we, that such persecution is alive and well even today. There's persecution from religious leaders. When we stand up for the gospel and the truth about Jesus Christ, we must not be surprised that there'll be people even from within the church who do not love a gospel of grace and who will persecute us for it. And we know that there are countries and places where if you stand up for Christ, you will be imprisoned. You will even be put to death. And yes, that happens today. And all of us will have heartache in our families, where there may be family members who are not Christians and who persecute us in different ways for it. 
And friends, these are not to be exceptions. It's not the unusual thing that may happen. Look at verse 22. You'll be hated by everyone because of me. I want to ask you, are you ready for that? Here we are, in comfortable pearly, respectable pearly. Do we really expect persecution in our lives? Probably not really. So are we really ready for it? Well, you see, if we share in Jesus' proclamation, if we are going to be bold to talk about Jesus, well, you can be absolutely certain that you will also share in his persecution. And maybe the uncomfortable question is, if we are not sharing in that persecution, is it because we are not saying anything and we are being silent? See, the temptation, isn't it? When you hear all that, you think, well, okay, I'll just sit in the little corner and wait for Jesus to return, right? But how can we do that if we share in Jesus' compassion for the lost? If we long for our friends and our family and our work colleagues and our neighbors to come to know Jesus, well, then you won't give up talking to them about him and sharing his kingdom. And the reality is that when you do that, there will be times when you will face persecution. You may not be put to death. You may not be put in prison. But you might be ostracized, not invited to the street party, you might uh, um, have people talking behind your back, mocking at you, ignoring you, and so on. We have a world in great need, harassed and helpless. They are like sheep without a shepherd. So we must share in Jesus' proclamation and point them to the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus. But they are also like a pack of wolves, so we will know that we will share in Jesus' persecution. But here's the great promise, and with this I end. Look again at verse 22. But the one who stands firm will be saved. The one who stands firm will be saved. There's the great promise, isn't it? As we stand firm in Jesus, trusting in him, being obedient to his word, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and enduring persecution. Well, in the end, when the Lord Jesus returns in all his glory and splendor and majesty, he will take us to be with him, and we will be saved.